danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will be the Hello and welcome to episode 324 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. Sorry ladies, no Nate Mavis on tonight's episode, today's episode, whatever time of day you're listening to this episode, there will be no Nate Mavis. What we do have for you is Ben Saxton. Ben was first our guest on episode 281. Uh, If you enjoy the Thinking Poker podcast, you will like Ben Saxton. Uh, Ben has been uh, doing the interview sort of player profiles for 2 Plus 2 magazine for a long time that I think are very much in the style of Thinking Poker interviews. Uh, We have a similar style, I should say. He's not in our style. Uh, We have a similar style, similar interests in terms of wanting to profile some of the more... uh, unique and interesting and colorful characters that one encounters in the poker world. Uh, Ben also teaches literature and writing classes at, uh, I believe, Tulane Medical School and Bard Early College. Um, And we actually talk a bit about his uh, transition to online teaching. Um, I guess, actually, I should warn people. Uh, I understand, you know, some people are probably listening to podcasts for uh, sort of an escape from uh, thinking about the pandemic. Uh, this is not going to be an escape. We talk a fair bit on this episode about, uh, you know, how we think the pandemic is going to shape the poker world going forwards. Uh, obviously, there's not a lot of information that we don't have, but you know, we try to uh, just sort of talk about both the state of poker now and people playing uh, poker online on the various apps and getting on Zoom and that kind of thing, and some speculation about uh, what the WSOP might look like. So a fair bit of that. We've got a fun uh, strategy segment that Ben joined me for as well, um, which means we're going to dive into the episode in just a moment. I do need to tell you about our strategy sponsors, though. First up is Learn Pro Poker from former podcast guest Ryan LaPlante. Excellent training site. If you enjoy uh, our strategy segments, I think that you will like Learn Pro Poker. Uh, Similar mix of game theory and exploitative-based play. You can sign up for that at thinkingpoker.net slash LPP for Learn Pro Poker. And also Range Trainer Pro, an awesome app for helping you uh, nail your preflop ranges. It's just an opportunity for you to drill your preflop ranges, makes it easy, makes it simple. There's really no excuse for not having those down pat and Range Trainer Pro can help you. You can sign up for that at thinkingpoker.net slash RTP. Enjoy the show. Hello, Ben Saxton. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. Yeah, I, it kind of, I mean, this happens to me a lot, but um, just, you know, I open up Skype to talk to you and it says, you know, it's, you chatted with this person over a year ago. I was like, has it really been that long since I talked to Ben? 
But I guess it has. Yeah, has it been? Uh, it's been a year, or is it two two years? I can't even remember. It's been one year. Uh, I don't, the Skype just said over a year, so I don't okay. know if it was. Uh, it didn't say how much over. It's been a while. I mean, fortunately, we have been able to talk off and on over. Email. It's like January second, twenty nineteen, was our previous conversation. Okay, all right. So, so yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we saw each other in Las Vegas. So it was we saw not... each other. We saw each other in Las Vegas, which was good. Um, yeah. So yeah. Again, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, I suppose we will not be seeing each other in Las Vegas, uh, at least not in in July this year. No, I I am eagerly awaiting news as it comes out, along with everybody else. I I mean, my understanding is that it's the the WSOP has been postponed until quote unquote the fall. Is, is right. That right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, honestly, I, even if they were to have it. I think I'm an underdog to go. Are you really? You 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 don't think you'll you'll go out if it's in like October, November? I doubt it. I mean, I think um, I I think in terms of like even if we're going out more by then, which I hope we are, I still think that sort of gathering of like thousands of people from all over the world, like passing around durable surfaces amongst one another, is um, is going to be a thing to avoid. Sure. Yeah. And I think this is something that, that, um, I mean, I, I personally haven't been thinking all, all that much about it. Um, I'm just not going to be playing, I don't think for, for a while, but I think for, it's just been a talking point. Like, like when are folks comfortable sit, sitting back down in a card room? And for some, some people they've, they've already pre-ordered their masks and they're like, when, when, the casino, <laughs> when the casino opens, I'm in there. And then, um, I think other other people are, are gonna wait wait a little bit more. But yeah, you do wonder how much the situation is gonna change four, five, six months from now. And and you know you wonder if if the WSOP will even be able to 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 have tournaments right. in, in October, November. It just doesn't seem clear. No, I, I don't think it is clear. I mean, I think it's. Um, it was, there, there was some speculation I imagine you saw even before they had officially postponed the WSOP. Some people were saying it's irresponsible that they haven't done it yet, and other people were saying, you know, there's really no incentive for them to um, to make the call until they absolutely have to. I mean, I guess the the incentive would be certain customers being able to, you know, cancel or change reservations or whatever. But I think that's still sort of as a as a person who is concerned about that, you could just kind of make your own decision about how likely it seemed that they were actually going to hold the event. Sure. Yeah. And we were also wondering down here in new Orleans about the circuit event, because in may that's kind of our yearly um, mm-hmm. big, big tournament. And then that got, that got canceled. So they were kind of canceling the circuit events one by one. Um, and, you know, when I heard that the WS, like the summer WSOP was postponed, I, it was really not surprising. Um, no, I, I just assumed, I mean, I, I thought that was you know, a very small. Like by by the time that they actually canceled it, I thought the odds of them holding it were you know, extremely slim, like you know, mm-hmm. worse than a hundred to one against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one, I mean, one thing that I that's been discussed is like a potential silver lining is that if they if if the WSOP gets rescheduled for the fall, maybe maybe it would just change to the fall instead of the summer. I mean, do you have like a preference for for that or do you think that would even be a possibility 
Um, I definitely have a preference for it. I mean, <laughs> the fall is a, a much more pleasant time to be in Las Vegas than the summer. And there's also the opportunity cost of, I mean, there's so many other places that are nice to be in the summer that are, you know, in some cases, not nice to be other times of the year. And so sort of feeling compelled to spend summers in Las Vegas when you could be in like Alaska or something um, is, you know, there, there's there's that downside to it as well. I do think from their perspective, like there's a reason it happens in the summer. Like they're aware that that's uh, a less pleasant time, but I think that's when it's hardest for them to fill the rooms is, has been my like assumption or understanding. And I don't think that incentive is, is going to change. Like I imagine there, um, I, I don't know exactly how it works, like whether the WSOP actually pays the Rio for the conventions, like if they're literally paying for it, but one way or another, there's like an opportunity cost of dedicating the convention center to the WSOP and not to something else. And I imagine that opportunity cost is lower in June, July than it is in October. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really is bittersweet for me because I, um, I don't know if I'd be able to, to, to go out in the fall. Um, you know, one of the, the great things about the summer schedule for me was that, uh, you know, my, my schedule kind of revolves around when I'm, when I'm teaching. And so, so my parents live in Arizona and in the summers, the last five summers, I've just gotten in a car and driven out West and, done some camping and hiking and visited my folks and went on to Vegas. Um, so uh, even if the, the WSOP is happening out in October, November, I, I don't know if I could swing it um, for like an extended trip. I, right. I, I think it would be, it would be possible to do. Um, yeah. Like a long weekend or maybe a week or something like this. Um, but I, you know, I've been spending, you know, I spent a month out there last last summer, and I've spent at least a few weeks. And so I think uh, it, this just feels like the end of a chapter of some kind, um, you know, for <laughs> – and I guess as we look back, just generally, I mean, I don't, I don't know that we're ever going to go back to quote-unquote normal after, after this as a society. And, and I think the right. poker world is going to change as well. No, you know, I, I'm always, yeah, I see references on you know, Twitter thing. People say like, when when everything's back to normal, or like once things are back to normal, and <laughs> there's always a part of me that wants to like jump in and like scold them or whatever. I'm like, what? Like, let them believe, you know, like maybe, maybe it will. Like, <laughs> there's no reason for you to like squash their, uh, their optimism, even though like my, I always have a very like eye rolly reaction to, mm-hmm. to that. But I mean, we all just sort of have to wrap our heads around things as, as we can. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I just think that we're we're um, condemned to a lot of uncertainty at the moment. I, I think like one of the one of the annoying slash scary things is is that the timetable is just pretty pretty long because it doesn't. Yeah. I don't think we can we whatever normal is. I don't think we're going to get to it until there's a there's a vaccine, right. and it, and uh, and I think we're. 15, 18 months away from that best case scenario. So, uh, yeah, down here, Louisiana is is preparing to to start reopening, and I, I think that that's happening elsewhere. And so, I, I think it's just going to be a gradual process of states. Well, Las Vegas, back right? In. They're uh, they're trying to make that the um, what, what was the term that the governor used for it or the mayor? Um, <laughs> Well, I don't know if a test case or control group was used. Gotcha. Yeah, control group. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Now that now that was uh, I 
I had my first uh, my first my first Zoom class last week, <laughs> and one of the students was was from Vegas, and, and and I was like, oh, you see your 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 mayor's interview, and she's like, she she just starts apologizing profusely on behalf <laughs> of her city. <laughs> I was like, it's okay, it's okay, we we still love you all. Yeah, I mean, I I um. I think there's also, with regard to the WSOP, I think there's also a kind of underappreciated element of how much of the the poker economy in general and the WSOP in particular, you know, it really, it's it's built on recreational players. Like, you need the recreational players to sort of keep things flowing. You know, they're, they're the customers, essentially, for the, for the entire operation. And a lot of those folks are in the at least slightly higher risk categories. You know, a, a lot of them are, if not 65 plus, at least 50 plus. Um, mm-hmm. Many of them are, uh, yeah, I think that there's, there's a lot of ways in which even if it makes sense for some people to be more like, even if the kind of, uh, you know, the very fit uh, Alex Foxens of the world, it's sort of like pretty safe for them to be out playing poker i think the risk profile for a lot of the people that he wants to be playing with um are such that it may not make them make sense for them to attend the the event and on the one hand like those folks are gamblers and (laughs) maybe they're just a little bit more like risk taking but um i i think there's also going to be like even if they do hold it i think there's going to be a fair number of people uh you know the, the recreational players who are contributing to the poker economy where um they're probably not going to go for that that you know like they're going to have more reason than the average american to avoid that kind of gathering sure yeah and uh, you, you you know you wonder what the what a what a revised tournament schedule would look like um both in terms of the the you know the wsop the vegas wsop and then also circuit events and uh you know six max has been discussed <laughs> like really like, and i i don't i wonder i just wonder i mean would that have any impact at all um i really don't know um, well, there, there's so much that we don't know, like, you know, how much the, uh, like, is, is it safe to be like sitting with people as long as you're consistently six feet away from them? Or is the six mm-hmm. feet more of just a guideline of like, oh, if you're walking past someone, try to keep it six feet. Like we just, uh, there's so much of that we don't have answers to yet. I mean, the other thing I just, with the, the proposals that I've seen floated for how poker rooms might reopen, um, you know, they're talking about having two employees per table, like one person who's dealing and one person who's kind of like constantly cleaning stuff mm-hmm. um, or like making sure the players are using hand sanitizer and, and all that kind of thing, which, I mean, A, feels like a, a just sort of weird and not that pleasant <laughs> experience. Maybe they can overcome that part, but also just, I mean, it seems like they would have to charge higher rake. Right? If we go from having a nine to one or 10 to one ratio of players to employee, and now we're going to have a, a six to two ratio like that's much higher cost from the from the casino's perspective never mind that if there's some sort of limit on the number of people that they're allowed to have in the casino which they very well may be or the poker room is not the first uh, area where they're gonna be prioritizing sending their customers mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think i mean i think we're we're kind of on the cusp of being able to see some of these questions play out in real time um, because I imagine as states reopen, casinos are going to reopen at the the earliest opportunity. Right. Um, 
you know, in poker rooms will probably follow suit in, in some form or fashion. Um, so I, you know, I, I will be an interested observer. I, I don't know that I'll be a participant for, for quite a while. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I stopped going several weeks before they were officially closed. I, okay. I already decided it was a bad idea. To, so I imagine it'll be the same for me when they reopen. Like my my personal uh, assessment of the risk is likely to be different than um, what the government or casino tells me is a safe thing to do. Sure. Um, and I mean, is there is there a flip side of this for you? Because I, I know just talking to folks down here, and it seems like this is the case everywhere, there's been a bit of a boom in the the online scene um so are you are you trying to play play online more these days or, or i honestly have played very little i've i've played a couple of sundays um i put some money on america's card room which i guess i'll you know i'll just say here since i'm mentioning it like that this is not a recommendation or endorsement like i've been skeptical of the u.s facing sites for a long time um i've put money on acr on a few different occasions i've always had at least a like slightly bad experience with um just the you know the, the customer service and uh i mean I've, I've always like gotten my money but there's usually been some sort of like at least slight complication or weirdness involved there so i mean i do advise people just like i'm aware of like people hear me saying like that i'm playing on acr that people might be thinking like oh, okay it's safe to play on acr and it probably is but um you know, it's not poker stars. Uh, this is not just like a, you know, definitely play on ACR. Like everything's fine and, and safe. Like there are real risks to playing on these US facing sites, I think. Um, but I did, I did put some money on there. Um, I don't know. I don't have enough of a comparison to say if the games were, you know, much better than they had been six months ago or, or whatever. But honestly, I, so I'm, I'm pretty close to finishing um, my, my new book and that's been taking up most of my time so i have not really been that inclined like between that and coaching i've been busy enough that i haven't really you know played a whole lot of uh, online poker mm-hmm. yeah i mean it seems like there's a lot of that to be had if 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 there is a, a desire but there's also it also seems like the the um the level of risk is a little higher too with some of these apps i mean and this is all hearsay for me i mean i, I know po- poker bros is kind of blown up and People are like the games are incredible, but but are the games secure? And mm-hmm. I, I guess that's just the um, that's just been the story of online poker for for a, a long time, maybe for. And it's been the story of home games, which you know the the those apps combine the two, right? Sort of like right. the risks of online poker and the risks of home games, but also like the upsides of online poker and the upsides of home games. Right, and I, I think there's been the the, the call the call for for legalization in some form or fashion has gotten more and more shrill uh, within certain areas of the, of the poker community. And you wonder if that's going to have an effect or if states are going to see some kind of uh, opening to, to seize upon um, because there's a lot of people who want to play. I mean, th- th- that's, that's yeah. clear. I don't think it's going to be driven by the demand side. Like, I don't think states are just going to be like, our citizens want to play online poker. Let's <laughs> let's mollify them. Like, it may be deli- driven from the fact that like governments are going to be really cash strapped. Um, well, yeah, that's what so, that's where I would point to it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's not about it's not about like a quick <laughs> right. Yeah, but I I I really have no um, I don't have much of an inkling, or I wouldn't even be. 
I'm not, I don't see myself even in a position to predict anything. I'm, I'm just more of a, an interested observer with all this. I mean, I, I, yeah. I think that this is truly new territory. And whenever we do come back, it's going to be, I, I think there's going to be kind of a long feeling out process uh, in the live scene about where, you know, where people are comfortable, how they're comfortable interacting, masks or no masks, how many, how many players to a game when and where to host tournaments. And I think that, you know, the next six months to a year could be, you know, super, super interesting. I mean, not just from the poker perspective, but, you know, down here, we, you know, I had a conversation with a friend this week. I mean, we're wondering if Mardi Gras is going to happen next year. Wow. And and, uh, there's obviously been a lot of talk about Mardi Gras as as one of the, the the starting points for the virus. And, and, um, you know, on the one hand, it's it's a far, it's a long ways off, and on the other hand, it, it really isn't. Yeah, I'm, I imagine the planning for that, you know, is happening year round. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, you know, f- festivals and uh, like Jazz Fest and French Quarter Fest and all that. That's that's all been canceled. Mm-hmm. But I think Mardi Gras is, is a li- like just a bit too far off to. There's certainly no discussion of canceling. I think at this point that down here the the main worry is, uh, you know, will we have Saints games or not, and <laughs> what, what will what will sporting events look like? So it's it's one of those things we'll we'll cross the Mardi Gras bridge when we when we come to it. But we are you know we are thinking and worrying about it. I wonder too how much um, just like people's routines being disrupted that like if people get out of the habit of playing live poker, how many people just won't come back to it you know either they'll take up different hobbies or whatever else um but just you know, like recreational players in particular i mean and i guess in some cases some of the like pros who are at the margins might just like get other jobs not that there's a lot of jobs to be gotten right now um but i'm thinking more from the recreational player perspective if they just like you know going to card rooms once they get out of the habit of doing it they don't really get back into that habit sure yeah so i, I can gauge that by my my own desire which i don't know how how well that maps onto like the population and, and then just sort of friends and acquaintances. I mean, do you have a sense of that from people who you talk to and like, what's your desire to, to like, how much do you miss live poker? Uh, not terribly really. Uh, I mean, WSOP in particular is sort of a special thing because it's the time of year. Well, you know, folks like yourself, it's like the one time of year that I get to see a lot of you know like i'm not gonna see carlos and that's a bummer and so, i mean there's there's the like social aspect of that um but yeah just like sitting around the live poker table i mean i might miss it more once i don't have the book to be working on anymore and i don't have as good of a means of monetizing my uh my time as, as i currently have i mean i guess i can start another book but um at the moment no i'm not really uh mm-hmm. missing yeah it. i guess i have had a fair number of my students you know who are in many cases, recreational players, um, you know, kind of asking me, what do I think is, is going to happen? Or, um, but they're also more, I mean, those are people who are paying for coaching. So kind of by definition, they're more serious players and not really the ones that the economy is, is built around. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I would say I'm probably close to you in terms of desire to play. It's, um, I don't miss it all that much, but I do miss, uh, the social aspect of it and seeing people who have become, you know, good friends in some instances. And, uh, I, I am in touch with a lot of people 
in like the Gulf Coast community, the New Orleans community. And, you know, one kind of neat thing that's that's happened as a result of this is uh, we have been playing some some home games, like Poker Stars has a home game mm-hmm. function. And uh, so we're able to hop on there and play a bit. And there's even like a, the organizer has a Google Hangouts link that you can click on while, while you're playing. You know, so I actually have been able to talk to a lot of people and oh, nice. get, get kind of gauge indirectly or directly, like just these questions, like how, how much do people want to want to get back in? And I, I think there's a lot of people who are itching to, to get back. Um, I, again, I think there I, are now. I just wonder, like, because they haven't been out of it for that long. But I, like, right. if, if it's six months before live poker is a thing again, I feel like a lot of routines are going to change and maybe some people's wives decided like it's been nice i guess it could go either way but yeah and um, the, the, the other thing is people are self-selecting into these like home games these google hangouts and yeah. so these are going to be like the the real the, the real and poker enthusiasts and 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 i agree that a big question mark is are those kind of fringe players right it's the people who might play on a friday night or might play on like a wednesday afternoon once or twice a week are, 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 once they get out of that habit, are they going to get back into it? And exactly. yeah, I, I I wonder the same thing. How do you like the? Uh, I, I, this is not something that I've done. Though, like you know, playing online with with Zoom running. How different does that feel than just playing live poker? Do you mean like the, the having like the the the, the Google the Google Hangouts? Or sorry, or the, yeah, Hangouts, not the, yeah. The, the the Zoom. Yeah. Um. It's it's fine. I I had been hopping on once a week to play. Um, the, the the club has gotten we, you know I think close, almost to a hundred people. It started small and now people are put, like there are games three or four or five days a week now. And so I've just been hopping on one day a week and it it's it's fun for the it it creates this quasi face-to-face encounter right <laughs> where you can kind of if so if you're in the chat and somebody else is in the chat and you get into a hand you have this like this like vague approximation of like a a stare down right <laughs> or, yeah. or or at least you can kind of talk some shit in the in the in the hangout yeah, and do people uh, ever just like duck a look because i feel like the, the gto thing would be to just you know turn your camera off when you're in hand <laughs> it, it, it would be um uh fortunately or or unfortunately we're not we're not Right. We're not pursuing GTO strategies in the, in the home <laughs> game, um, but yeah, I think I think that that uh, that it, it just kind of adds an interesting dynamic. Um, I can, I literally just saw this on Twitter. It, it, it was kind of a funny Jason Kuhn story that he just shared. Um, just speaking of like playing on apps, it was a it's a Phil Ivey story, and I, apparently and. He told the story about how like he, he went all in uh, on this cash game app for some big bluff, and Phil goes up, c- comes up comes on over the microphone and is like, "Hey, the whole card is my whole card is blurry. What's the what's the river?" And Coon says, "It's the ten of hearts." And Phil goes, "Okay, thanks. I call." <laughs> <laughs> and Coon's like, "I was I was so steamed up." And uh, so anyway, when you when you were asking me about the 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 facial the face to face encounters and the Google Hangout it's yeah the meta the meta game can get very very interesting I would imagine when especially when you're playing for God knows how much money they're playing for yeah 
so you mentioned you you've been doing uh, teaching over Zoom also. Um, I'm going to be taking the plunge into Zoom soon. I was teaching uh, an elective in the, the like January February, and we were able to get the last class in in person before everything went online, and I. I'm going to be teaching a class over Zoom starting in May, and I'm a little bit, I'm just apprehensive about it, as I think most people are. I love being in the classroom with students. I think it's just like one of my favorite things to do. And I have a number of friends who are just trying to make that transition. And my uh, my ex-girlfriend actually is one of the people who I've been talking to about like zoom, it's almost like zoom culture. She's, she is in the position now of being on zoom for like set, like six, seven, eight hours a day. Um, not just for teaching, but for like administrative, administrative like meetings and this kind of thing. And so that were like phrases like zoom fatigue and zoom exhaustion are being thrown around. And, um, I so I'm apprehensive about it. I'm not worried that that's going to happen to me because I, I I don't there's no way that I'm going to be on Zoom for you know any more than like maybe three hours yeah. on a given day, but I am gearing up for that and I have a couple weeks to to prepare. It is I mean I don't know if you if you've spent time on the you know because Skype is one thing or face to face one on one meetings are are one thing, but Zoom is like I, I went into a meeting the other day and there were 80 people. Wow. It's just kind of, it's just very weird. Yeah, and no, I, I don't have any experience with something like that. I um, I, I attended a, a a poetry reading over Zoom <laughs> earlier this week, but I wasn't. I, mean, I was just a, an observer, and that was pretty easy to manage because it was you know, most people were just observers, and so they could you know, whoever was reading, they would just put them like make their video front and center. It wasn't really like, uh, you know, 40 people or whatever were there. It wasn't really like they were all participating. Um, but yeah, a meeting where it was actually like 80 people are trying to contribute seems um, insane. It, yeah, definitely. And I think that, uh, you know, we're just seeing, <laughs> we're, there's just, it, it was, this is just the twilight zone. I mean, I, I don't know if you're, a, if you're an NFL fan. Um, I'm not really, but I, I, I saw, one thing I have been doing more because of this this whole pandemic thing is I've been on Twitter more, and I've just been like, I just find it a really good way to, to kind of follow what's going on. And I, I felt that uh, way at first. I've now taken Twitter off of my phone. <laughs> uh, okay, that's that's very fair. Twitter's been off my phone for a long time, but um, I, I feel very good about that decision. By the oh, way. Like, it's a yeah. I, that, I still, that was, you know, I can go online when I want to get it, but just like getting constant like Twitter notifications, or just like I'm brushing my teeth and I'm just like, oh, I'll just scroll Twitter, like. Sure. I'm, so much happier not doing that. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I have been on more in the last month or so, and uh, the NFL draft news was 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 on, and, and one of the, you know, people are getting these 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 they're getting drafted in their homes, and there was this moment where, uh, and the coaches I guess are drafting in front of their computers, and there's a moment where like. You know, it's like the Patriots are drafting up next, and and you know we'll be back after this commercial break. And they they go to the the screen where Bill Belichick is has his like draft set up, and there's like his laptop and his at his kitchen, and Belichick is nowhere to be found, and there's just his dog is on the chair, 
<laughs> just sitting in front of the computer. <laughs> just like like he, the dog looks like he's ready to draft, you know. <laughs> and, and, and so that was floating around. And then Belichick like comes comes back and gives the dog like a little little treat and kind of like chuckles. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, we're just seeing these. Um, uh, the guy is it John Krasinski, or the, the guy who is yeah. um and yeah he he hosted a like a virtual prom. I don't know if you heard about this. I I, I know he's got a like I forget exactly what it's called, but I I did see like one episode of his his show um that was like something about you know good things that are happening or whatever. I forget what it's called, but um yeah I, I imagine it was it was related to that. Yeah yeah so um yeah so for me I think like uh. It's uh, the, the 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 virtual world, the world of Zoom. It's something that I need to to dip into and and uh, learn about as I go. But for the most part, I'm, I'm I'm you know my days are structured much more around like reading and writing and being outside. Um, you know, I am like right by the rivers, so I can 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 run on the levee and um, take the dogs for a walk and and so so most of my days are, you know, I'm somebody who that that's kind of how my routine has been structured for a while. So it hasn't been a huge transition, but it, but things have gotten just a little bit simpler and quieter. Um, so yeah, I feel like I'll be able to, to deal with, deal with the zoom teaching when it, when it, when it comes around and hopefully won't get too, too, uh, exhausted by it. What kind of like training or, or preparation are you getting for for doing that? Because the impression that I got, like my my brother works in uh, academia also, and um, it, it sounded like it was just like a real scramble where he is to like there wasn't you know just like oh shit we're gonna have to like do this online like uh, like there there wasn't really a, a good um, ramp up or, or preparation for the people who are gonna be doing the uh the the teaching like have they i guess now they've had a little bit more time to know that this is is coming have they been like preparing you for that um i'm gonna say no no they have not i i got a link to a webinar about how to how to use zoom that happened i didn't click on the link i have been i've been just trying to get better by by trial and error i I, i've been on some zoom social meetups like my writing group has a zoom that was actually like the first the first zoom meeting that i went on um and it was the same thing there were like a dozen or 15 of us and so i figured out how to log on and then at one point i didn't know how to like turn my microphone off and then somebody walked down like like my housemate came in and i was talking to him and then i like apparently <laughs> like my, my our conversation was on zoom and i'm like oh this is the mute button so i learned how to use the mute button that time and and so now I'm at a point where I, I feel a little bit more competent about it. But things like sharing screens and maybe some of the more advanced stuff, I yeah, I haven't gotten too much instruction. But I'm I'm just approaching it trial and error. And if you know if there's there are things that I need to to, to do that I can't do, then I'm gonna obviously figure out how. But um, for the most part, we um, yeah, we're 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 all just like improvising and winging it. So the, the program that I'm, so I teach, you know, just part-time at Tulane and the, and the, 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 there's a master's program that the medical school is, is, is starting in May. 
in uh, bioethics and medical humanities. And, and so it's literally a fledgling program, really bad timing in terms of, of all of this that's happening. And so, uh, you know, another thing that's being affected is just enrollment. So I think they were aiming for having six or seven or eight students, something like this, and there are only three students in the, in the, the program. Um, so I think they might have lost a few. And, and so there's just a lot of uncertainty about, like, will the, will the classes even run? Um, so I, I think it's very much just like an, like a collaborative effort, collaborative effort. We're trying to just think, think and like learn about this together. Um, and so I would say like, although uh, like I haven't been forced to take tutorials or I, I think that those resources are there and I, you know, I'm just approaching it. Like I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out as I go. And, and so far, like the, I, the first class last, last week was, was pretty much fine. I feel like I'm decently able to suss out, you know, te technology and figuring out how the, these certain programs work. So, so far it's been okay. Have you read infinite jest? I have actually. So I don't it's know if big, you, it's a big book. It's a, it's a large tome. Um, there's there's a passage in there. It, at least for me, it's one of the more memorable ones. And you know this, well, you know this. I think it was published in like '96. I mean, it's well before uh, Skype or, or Zoom or like any kind of actual video calling. But the book is set in the near future, and he writes this sort of. Um, you know, history of video calls where essentially like the technology to do video calls is invented. People start doing them. Um, people become very like self-conscious of what they look like on video and there start being all these um, things that you can like accessories to uh, kind of decorate your, your video. And then eventually people end up just like replacing the video with still pictures of themselves that look so basically like the, the world invents video conferencing, decides that they don't like it and kind of like, uninvent it again the basic premise being that like you don't really want to know what other people are doing while they're on the phone with you like you like to be able to imagine that um you have their sort of like full and rapt attention and it's actually like disconcerting to see that you know they're just like picking at their fingernails or or whatever they're doing um and i definitely feel that way now like that's in my head every time and i try to avoid even when i do like coaching over skype i don't usually do video um and anytime that i am doing a video call i'm like very aware of that uh that passage yeah, I mean, that book is, like, so before its time and prescient in its own way. I mean, like, in, ter in terms of just, like, like mass commodification. And also when I think of, like, the just this age of distraction that we live in, I mean, yeah. and entertainment and streaming platforms, it's all, I mean, this is, this is where we are. And I think that what we've seen in the last month or two is, like, um, you know, online and streaming on steroids right because mm -hmm. for, for a lot of us that's that is it's both entertainment a way to escape and it's it's how we support ourselves it's our work you yeah. know and so um so that's another thing that i wonder i wonder about in terms of uh higher ed and education is will Will we go back to quote unquote normal, or or are we now headed into this, because this new frontier of like Zoom meetings and kind of remote conferencing, which obviously has happened before, 
but now it's been ramped up to a level that we've never we haven't seen and and i, and I, I just wonder what what things are going to look like really even in the fall in terms of both enrollment and in terms of i mean my sense is like we're probably going to be on zoom in the fall as well but yeah i'm not really sure now i've heard a lot of speculation of you know are are people really going to be willing to pay thirty five forty thousand dollars a semester for zoom classes that's the thing and like i just saw i had a conversation with my buddy who's a painter and uh some of these like specialized programs like if you're a painter or visual artist of some kind and you're planning to go to like New York City, are you gonna pay forty grand to like zoom in, zoom in with your professor who's like across the country and watch them paint over you know on your computer? It's just is such that's just a very hard sell. So yeah. I think it's gonna be very difficult to attract students and you know there's the flip side of it which is just like people aren't going to be able to pay as well right which i mean i guess we didn't even talk about that aspect of uh how the poker economy will be affected but um yeah i mean imagine a, a fair number of the uh deep-pocketed recreational players are going to be somewhat less deep-pocketed and less inclined to be putting up ten thousand dollars for a poker tournament yeah even, you know one thousand it's interesting because i mean the last <clears throat> financial dip would have been like 2009 right 2008 2009 mm -hmm. is that um do you remember there being uh, uh i remember i mean the numbers for the wsop like the main event that was that was like boom, that was boom time yeah so I, I i don't i wonder how well that's yeah. that's gonna line up you know yeah and I was also not playing a lot of live poker then. I mean, I guess you would sort of expect to see the same thing online. Um, yeah, I don't remember being real, real conscious of it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely something they're gonna need to think through, and that's something they have been thinking through in terms of price points, right? I mean, they, they, like we've seen so many different kinds of tournaments being being uh, promoted, and, and they've expanded the the WSOP calendar. And it might require some more revision to have like low, like low, ro low roller type tournaments, and the numbers for the main might drop, or they might not. I, I really don't know. It's just so hard to gauge. But. Yeah. I guess there's also been some some speculation about whether the Rio will ever reopen. Um, that could be another potential uh, upside if we get to have the WSOP somewhere else. Yeah. Are you, are you, are you ready to be done? You got no nostalgia value for the, for the Rio? Honestly, like I think the Rio is a pretty good location for it. Like being off the strip is a really, is nice. I mean, I, I understand it's like inconvenient in some ways, but I don't think people really appreciate what a cluster because like parking and, and traffic can get pretty bad around the WSOP, like uh, near the start time of Colossus or whatever, even in its current location. Like, could you imagine if you're trying to get there, like, on a Saturday on the strip. Can you imagine like Caesar's palace or something? I would just yeah. be, it would just be mayhem. I, I heard that there's, I mean, I guess fewer people would be driving. Maybe if some people can just walk, people would be hotel. driving. And I also think, isn't the target, the, the proposed site, a convention center that's like sort of off. It's like slightly off strip. Is that right? I think so. But I think it's, it's, you know, it's much closer right. to the, the strip. I think you'd still be encountering a lot more strip uh, traffic. Yeah, I mean, I, I've gotten to the point where I'm 
perfectly comfortable with the Rio, but I just wonder how much of that is just is just getting acclimated to it, right? And and just being um, being comfortably uncomfortable. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this is that's another thing that that might be another part of the next chapter is we may never even go back to the Rio like the like the post COVID poker might be at on strip or somewhere else. Um, yeah. Uh, I just pulled up a strategy hand. If you'd be interested in uh, talking through a hand. Yeah. I'm always happy to always happy to take a crack. I can take a crack. That, that's all we're going to do is discuss. Great. This hand comes from Larry. Uh, sorry to make everyone nostalgic for live poker, but uh, it's from the Borgata Fall Poker Open. It's a $600 buy-in with a 500k guarantee. Deep into day two of the event, currently in the money. Um, he's still at his original day two starting table. Feels like he has a pretty good feel for the table. Action has been less aggressive. He's been one of the more active players. He's got a stack of about 450k, 75 big blinds, when the following hand comes up. I think I'll just read through the whole email and then we can come back and zoom in on some particular discussion points. <clears throat> uh, we're at the 3K, 6K blind level, and he again has 450K, 75 big blinds. A young lady raises from under the gun to 14K. I had not seen her get out of line, and she had about 340K. She gets two callers, and I come along in the small blind with Jack 8 offsuit. Probably not GTO calling in this spot. Uh, granted, I will be out of position for the rest of the hand, but I was prepared to represent a wide range of hands and was hoping to either flop big or play a board with mid to low connected cards. Flop is ace-jack-8 rainbow. Normally, I would lead out here, but opted for the check-raise strategy since we were multi-way, figuring an ace would be in the range of the other players. Of course, the action checks through. Turn is another jack to give me a boat. It's a board now ace-jack-8-jack. Eight, jack. Our hero has jack-8 offsuit. I come in with a 36k bet into a 68k pot and get called by the original under the gun raiser. River's a six, so the final board is six eight jack jack ace with no flush possibilities. I take some time and cut out 77k, which seemingly put the under the gun raiser in an uncomfortable spot. After some deliberating, to my surprise, she announces all in. And as I ask for a count, there is some banter. She says, "Oh good, you didn't just snap." It's about 200k more to me, which would leave me with about 110k, around 17 big blind, if I were to call and lose. I tell her I have a full house, and she says you're going to fold a full house in a surprise tone. The table talk has me confused, as I have just recently decided to play more live tournaments and not sure how to interpret it, even though I've been playing for over 15 years online. Is she trying to trick me into a call, or are all of her comments genuine in their nature, which would make it an easy call for me? I take a while thinking about going through range of hand that she would play like this. Aces, ace-jack, uh, ace-king, ace-queen is a bluff, and how usually if you get raised in a spot like this on the river, they have it in a live tournament. Uh, I folded and showed the jack-eight, leaving myself with about 320k. She flipped over king-jack, which surprised me for a number of reasons. First, I did not have king-jack on her opening range under the gun, and uh, the smooth call on the turn when she hit trips. I'm not sure if I should have bet bigger on the turn or river to price me in for a call on the river or discourage her from even making that play. Would love to hear how you guys would have reacted to that type of banter and the type of bet sizing you would suggest. 
So I think the first decision point is just pre-flop. Um, we're at the 3-6 level. We've got an under-the-gun raise to 14K. Two people call. Our hero's in the small blind with Jack-8 offsuit. Uh, he acknowledges this is uh, probably not GTO, he says. Um, how, how bad do you think it is? I mean, I, I, I would say bad. I, I think that for me, uh, a marginal but defensible call would be a hand like Jack-8 suited. And I think that's even a bit ambitious, yeah. uh, given that this woman opened from early position. Um, the, the field callers are going to be, they're going to be do- dominating us with all better Jacks. And we're really praying for, a gin flop that, uh, you know, and e- e- even this flop, Ace Jack Eight, is it's a good flop, but I but she holds all all the hands that dominate us. So I would certainly I would snap fold this pre. Mm. I think it's a more interesting question about whether or not to complete from the big blind, perhaps. Um, and I think I could. I suppose I could get on board with a with a call of Jack Eight suited in some situations, but I think that's even it's it's marginal. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think honestly, like even Jack Ten offsuit from the small blind is like probably a fold here. Jack Eight off is much worse than than Jack Ten off. Um, you know, for for playing in a multi way pot, especially playing somewhat deep i mean he's got 75 big blinds there's you know one player at the table at least who also has a, a relatively large stack like i don't think there could be a better illustration of this than the fact that he makes a full house and still doesn't feel like his hand is strong enough to stack off like that's i mean that that really encapsulates the problem with playing jack eight offsuit is like even when he gets what he asked for which is uh you know I, I was hoping to flop big like he flopped big and he still ended up in a bad spot uh, and that's yeah, it's just going to happen a lot. Um, as you say, even on the ace-jack-8 board, it's a little dicey to just like play for stacks with this hand in a four-way pot. I mean, it, it's it's kind of a lot to ask that someone is willing to put in, say, 60 big blinds with ace-king on this board in a, in a four-way pot. I think you're just not going to make the kind of hand that you need to make with jack Like So often you're going to end up with some kind of marginal equity, which is really hard to play out of position. You know, change this board to like, king jack five your equity is really hard to defend um change it to queen nine five and you've got a gut shot but that again is like pretty hard to realize that equity like you often just end up folding away a a decent chunk of equity on the flop and there's nothing you can really do about it so what is your what does your calling range look like from the small blind in this situation and we don't know anything about the the big blind um yeah I, you, I think you really need to focus on hands that like you don't get to do a lot of calling here. I think people misunderstand because it looks like you're getting pretty good odds. And what a lot of people don't appreciate is, yeah, you're getting good odds, but you also have to beat a lot of players. Like you're out of position to at least three, quite possibly four players, because if you call, it starts to look pretty appealing to the big blind to call. So I mean, even if you're getting like seven to one or something, I mean, to just you know, if you're playing against 
four other players, your baseline for winning the pot is only 20%. And then we figure you've got a worse than average hand, you've got the worst position. Like, I think it's it's quite implausible that you're going to win the pot one time out of eight, which is what you would need if you're getting seven to one odds. So I think it, it's very deceptive to just kind of look at odds. Um, I also think, you know, what, what our correspondent here says, in addition to trying to hit a big flop, he also says, I was prepared to represent a wide range of hands. And I think that also is very ambitious for being out of position in a multi-way pot. Um, it, it's hard to bluff a four or five-way pot. I mean, you have to get... I say there's there's a thing that I, I like to ask people sometimes. You know, if, if you're playing against four opponents and you bluff and three of them fold, did the bluff almost work? <laughs> yeah, I think the answer is no. Like, the point is, you're always up against the strongest of four hands. You know, it's not just like you're trying to get four... He's trying to get through four random hands. Like one of those hands is going to be pretty strong, and the hard part is getting the strong one to fold. In a heads-up pot, you're only trying to get one hand to fold when you bluff. So it's very hard to bluff in multi-way pots. I don't think you really have the opportunity to to represent a wide range of hands. Um, yeah, I, I think like in order to call in this spot, you need a hand that you'll actually feel good about if it makes. It, the hand it could potentially make so and that's why i say like jack 10 offsuit might be kind of close because you make a lot more straights with jack 10 offsuit and a straight's the kind of hand you can feel good about even in a four or five way pot uh, as you said like jack eight suited is close because it can make straights and flushes like i would call it with jack nine suited or jack 10 suited for sure it's just that you know jack eight it's a lot harder to make those those straights which is why it's borderline um but that's the kind of hand you need you, you need something that's suited connected you have the pocket pairs that can make sets you need to be able to make a hand that you're going to be very confident in when you make it and you need to make that hand reasonably often it's also tricky knowing how thinly we can re-raise for value against somebody whose range presumably should be really strong like he mentions that he was surprised that she had king jack i don't remember if it was king jack suited or not but actually wasn't certain, sure. certain certain player types i mean that like they're never raising King Jack there. And so that makes it tricky to know uh, whether like ace queen, for instance, is a value raise or not. Um, and so like the top end is also kind of, kind of tricky to think about uh, re-raising as well. I would say with ace queen, I, I would re-raise. Um, you're right that it's not like, I don't think you're pushing a big equity advantage against the under the gun razor, especially not if it's a player on the tighter side. But you also don't need to be. You know, even if you're only breaking even against under the gun, you're getting a pretty big subsidy on the three bet from those callers who like you're likely to push them out of the pot. And so just getting to essentially play heads up against the under the gun razor, I don't think you're gonna be an equity disadvantage. Like I don't think ace like I don't think the under the gun razor's range is gonna be so strong that ace queen is like in bad shape when a three bet gets called. Um you, do, I mean, you fold to a four bet, and I don't think you fold away very much equity when you fold to a four bet. Uh, if the three bet does get called, you make the effective stack a lot shallower, which is good when you have ace queen, and also good when you're out of position, and you get a lot of valuable fold equity from those callers. Sometimes you get a, a valuable fold from under the gun. I think you do want to err on the side of three betting um, more so in in multi way pots when you feel pretty like. Doing these kind of like thin value three bets, I think those make more sense in multi-way pots, especially when you have a hand like Ace Queen offsuit that um, that wants to play with a lower SPR and that that where you're going to be out of position, um, you'd rather have a lower SPR or end the hand preflop when you're going to be out of position. 
what are you doing with like the suited the suited aces like uh, like ace eight and like the suited wheel aces? Are you using those to to like quote unquote three bet bluff, or are you just trying to um, call and dominate weaker flush draws? Um, I would err on the side of calling. I think those are very close decisions. Uh, which I'm sure is, is why you <laughs> chose them as examples. Uh, the, the, you know, those are very close decisions. I imagine at equilibrium. I mean, I'd, I, I'm not very well versed in well, uh, like equilibrium in a five-way preflop pot would look like. But I think you're right that those are candidates for three betting. I think given the like descriptions and player profiles here, we want to err on the side of not making those lighter three bets. I think we're looking at probably a tighter than equilibrium under the gun opening range. We're probably looking at players who are a bit too loose in the with, for the middle position callers, which means they're probably going to call the three bet with some hands that they shouldn't, which increases the value of three betting ace queen off, but decreases the value of three betting like ace eight suited, where you're not your hands not going to perform so well against their their calling ranges. Um, I also think there's you know, probably more value than there should be in just calling with those hands because people are going to play less well against them after the flop and probably like overvalue some of their hands and uh in four or five way pots like you know putting in too much money with two pair when there's a flush on the border that kind of thing so i I think there's a lot of reasons to err on the side of calling with those kinds of hands that that don't mind so much being i mean every hand minds being out of position but the stronger the hand you're drawing to the less of a big deal it is to be out of position and those hands don't mind going multi-way nearly as much as ace queen offsuit does makes sense uh but no jack eight offsuit no jack eight offsuit no jack eight offsuit not <laughs> not close um you know it, this is the sort of thing that if you're a recreational player and it's fun for you to play these hands more power to you um you are not even close to making money on these calls and my like pet peeve is when people who like i i don't mean to necessarily say that this is the case about our correspondent because i don't you know, know him for sure but um i i do know that like Many recreational players who just want to play hands will. I mean, this happens with professionals too, actually. Like everyone wants to play hands, and people will invent reasons why they can call that are sort of like pseudo value oriented. Um, and I mean, this is not. You are not making money with this call, and you're not going to convince me otherwise. Uh, so our hero calls in the small blind with Jack Eight offsuit. We go to the flop with 68k in the pot. Our hero, well, the effective stack, I believe, is um, around 330k now. So 68k in the pot, 330k in the effective stacks. The flop is ace, jack, eight, rainbow. Our hero has jack, eight for bottom two pair. Um, he says normally I would lead out here, but opted for check raise multi way. Um, I think this should just be a check raise. Like, I wouldn't. I don't think you ever want to have a leading out range here from the small blind. Um, again, a heads up pot, I wouldn't. And multi-way, I mean, he's right that you should be even more inclined to check raise. Say, I think this is just a... Uh... So honestly, like what you said about even on this board, you know, ace-jack-8 is, is not quite the nuts. I mean, depending on what happens behind us, this could, this could even just be a check call. Like I'm not 100% sure that we're going to want to check raise. If the action is like bet call... This might not be a raise. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it would depend on the action. Um, I mean, it also kind of, there's also the question of like what, like how many bluffs do we even want or what are we going to have? And, um, you know, when we check raise, what is that? What a, what a, what a hands like ace king and ace queen do. Right. Um, so it, it, it's, 
I mean, is it fair to say that like Jack eight would be the worst hand that we would check raise if we do check raise? It's the worst hand that we'd be check raising, thinking we might be ahead of call. <laughs> I mean, right, right, like right. That's like what I mean. Sometimes we might just check. Yeah, but I mean, like we might even take some hands that have some value to like. I mean, even something like Ace Five suited could be a check raise sometimes as a sort of. Um, weird like so if it checks around to the button and the button bets there could be some reasons to check raise something like ace five suited where there's actually potential to drive out better hands from some of the other players in the pot and to not be in terrible shape against the button's calling range because the button is probably betting a bunch of straight draws um so like there are some like in multi-way pots there are some weird bets where it's kind of hard to categorize like whether they're their value or or bluff or whatever but yeah your your general point is taken this is uh, it's already pushing it a little bit and, and you know, I don't know that we want to get this all in against the under the gun razor some of the other players might be shorter stacked where you know we could more expect them to just step but I mean those other players are also less likely to have a good ace because they didn't three bet you know like the only one who's really likely to have ace king is is under the gun um you know, ace queen, I suppose people could have ace 10. It starts to get a little dicey that people are going to like overvalue that to the degree that they're going to put in, you know, 40 big blinds or whatever with it. Yeah, I, I agree. I would, I would definitely check. I would check the side basically. I mean, I right. would check, check the side based on who's betting and sizing. Um, <laughs> like if the original razor, you know, checks to her and she like pots it, you know, I'm just not happy. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I think I, I think that the, the hope is she's just overvaluing ace-king or ace-queen, right? right? I mean, or, or maybe, like, like, but bombing it with with 9-10, I don't really know what natural bluff she would have. Um, but to me, it's like a pot, like a, like a check raise depend, depending on, on the better and the sizing they're using. Yeah, and this is something I think a lot of people just struggle with in, in multi-way pots, is how differently you have to value hands, right? That that just jack eight on ace jack eight in a five-way pot, or I guess we're four ways here, but either way, um, it's very different than ace jack eight in a heads-up pot. And you you like, just because your hand would be strong heads-up, you can't just assume like that you have a strong hand when you're four or five ways because again like the hand that you're going to be up against is much stronger on average like you're always going to end up playing against the best hand of the ones all your opponents have or usually you are and um that hand is going to be you know much stronger than than the average hand strength you'll be up against heads up and it's much harder for you to bluff so they have less incentive to continue with weaker hands as you say you know it's kind of tricky for you to have bluffs in this situation which doesn't give your opponent a whole lot of incentive to keep paying you off with ace king race queen um, I do think you know check, checking at least is the way to go. Though. I would I would never lead out here, um, and it ends up checking around. So the turn is another jack board now. Ace jack eight jack. Our hero has jack eight for a full house. There's 68k in the pot, 330k in the effective stacks. So our SPR is around five. Um, how much would you bet? At this point, we've got 68k in the pot. He decides to lead out from the small blind. I mean, first off, do you like leading in his shoes? And and if so, what would your bet sizing look like? Um, I do like leading. Uh, I think some players might be be certainly field callers who aren't last to act might be checking an ace here. Um, and so when the when the the action checks through. 
I would be betting probably on the smaller side to target like ASEX um, and maybe stubborn pocket pairs like pocket kings, pocket queens. Uh, so I would probably bet a little bit smaller to target those hands. And also because I, again, I don't know how many bluffs I would have here. I don't know. Was the, was the flop rainbow? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, that's going to make it harder for us to be, to have natural bluffs. And so, uh, so I would bet on the smaller side, uh, targeting like ace X. So he bet 36 K. Is that right? Yeah, so like two-thirds, okay. not even two-thirds. Okay, I would probably bet something like 25 or 30K. Um, I don't know how if that's on target or not, but that's that's where I'm, that's like what I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I think that the critical thing is that you should be targeting an ace, um, and I do think you should be betting. Right? It, it's There's really not a lot of incentive for someone holding an ace to bet when checked to. Right? If we imagine one of these field callers has something like ace-10 or ace-5 suited, there's not a lot of reason for them to bet that hand. Um, I don't think they can expect to get called by many hands that are worse. There's a little bit that they're concerned about. I mean, there's some like straight trials or whatever. There's only one card to come. There's still a risk of running into a better hand or getting check-raised or whatever. I mean, people don't have a lot of incentive to bet an ace when checked to, nor should you really expect that anyone is going to bluff when checked to. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who reflexively check in this situation because there's like, oh, I have a strong hand, I have the board crushed, I would, you know, I don't want to fold people out. Um, and they want to be deceptive when they have a, a full house. But the problem is, I don't think there's any scenario where checking results in people putting more money in the pot. You know, as I said, you're unlikely to induce thin value bets. You're unlikely to induce bluffs. And I, there's not really a lot of rivers where suddenly someone goes from, you know, they're unwilling to call a bet on the turn, but now they're willing to put in heaps of money on the river. That's really the scenario that you want. And if you think about why would you slow play, what, what's the value of letting a person see a free card? If your opponent just has some garbage hand, like 6-5 suited, that's never putting money in the pot no matter what, then like betting and causing them to fold that hand is not costing you anything because you would never get any money from it anyway. Um, the hands that you would really hate folding out, I mean, I guess if someone has like pocket fives and the river is going to be a five, you know, and then they would play a big pot when they have a full house. Like th there's a few scenarios like those that are kind of long shot. Um, but then like our hero is not even happy putting in all the money anyway on the river. So, um, <laughs> I mean, that was against the under the gun razor, I guess. But yeah, I think it's just, you know, there's not really, like there's just a decent chance you're not going to win a big pot here <laughs> and you know checking doesn't checking doesn't change that you're you're the best you can hope for is that someone has an ace and they're more likely to call bets with an ace than they are to bet an ace when checked to and so you just have to ask yourself how much do i think someone's going to be willing to call if they do have an ace i wouldn't be surprised ben if like <laughs> theoretically it's pretty hard for you to bluff here and people really shouldn't be calling a 36k bet with like ace five I think in practice, people have a lot of trouble folding top pair to one bet when there was no bet on the flop. Um, I do kind of like his sizing. I could even see going a little larger. Like I feel like if you bet 45K, someone holding ace five is still not that likely to fold, even though they should. Yeah, I mean, that was my question for you, is like if you like smaller or larger sizing. And I do think a lot of it does come down to uh, what the field is going to be doing with ace X. And, you know, things like how do they perceive you and... Um, so yeah, given given the players, I think his sizing or even bigger uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, I think in terms of like the hands that I would be targeting, 
like weak ace x and like pocket kings pocket queens type hands uh i also like think it makes sense to just like go smaller for two streets against those hands um but i I think a lot of it does depend on player types too yeah i mean it's worth pointing out too that there is another jack out there and it's not necessarily going to raise. You know, if someone's holding Jack-10 suited or, or Queen-Jack suited, I don't think they have a lot of incentive to raise you when you bet. So, you know, sizing up a little bit to win more from that from that hand, I mean, that, that's another upside to betting a bit larger. I don't think anyone's ever folding trips, but they're not necessarily raising them. So the size of your bet is going to determine how much you win when someone has trips, unless you fold the trips on the river. <laughs> yeah, you know, that makes, that makes a lot of sense because I think when people call that that under the gun raise they're gonna have like a lot of king jack queen jack jack 10 and yeah. they probably are not gonna raise so so that so the bigger sizing obviously makes sense in that case i also just kind of as a general rule for bet sizing i tell people you know err on the large side and your opponents will pleasantly surprise you with their looseness <laughs> <laughs> i mean if yeah. you if you play poker especially live poker you know i mean people just it, calling is more fun than folding <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, our hero bets 36k only under the gun calls, and the river is a six. So we're looking at 140k in the pot on the river, and there is about 300k, a little less, remaining in the effective stacks. Uh, final board: Ace Jack Jack eight six. Our hero has Jack-8, heads up against an under-the-gun raiser who checked the flop. Um, he ends up betting 77k into 140, which strikes me as um, too small for, I mean, basically all the same reasons that I gave on the on the turn. I think we're still targeting the same kinds of hands. I think, especially since we're up against under the gun, it's more likely that she's going to have ace-king or ace-queen than, you know, ace-ten or ace-five. And I think people are just very reluctant to fold ace-king when they hit that top pair. Um, she also might have a jack that, uh, I mean, I know the results are that she does shove with king-jack, but I think a lot of people, especially if they have a slightly weaker jack, are just going to be calling with those. And again, we want to max out against them. I mean, with 140k in the pot, I think we want to bet more like 100k, not 77. Yeah, I mean, so what, what my thinking is like the another advantage of the bigger bet size is that you're you're kind of freezing out people from like mistakenly value raising worse. Like if you make it big, they're most likely going to call with like king jack, queen jack. That's my thinking, and so you're really in a tough spot if you're if you bet big and get shoved on because now you're you're now you have to ask yourself like does she just have the nuts um so putting aside results for a minute a a big bet seems ideal to get value from like other jack x and in it i wouldn't expect people to raise that hand um but it happens sometimes, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I, I do like betting bigger here. I wouldn't necessarily say, like, I'm not even really expecting a river raise. Or, I mean, it's 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 hard not to talk about it because we know it's coming. But I don't, I'm not, like, that's not really guiding my thinking when I'm sizing my bet 
here. I don't expect it to happen very often. Once she checks behind the flop and calls the turn, she's the player with the condensed range. We're the player with the polarized range. I'm expecting that she's mostly calling or folding to a bet. And my thinking is just all about what's the max that she's going to be willing to call with my target hands. If she does shove, I think we just cross that bridge when we come to it. But I'm not really sizing my bet based on like, oh, this is going to make it easier or harder for me to call a shove or easier or harder for me to fold to a shove. I just I don't think the, the possibility of facing a raise here, it, I think it just happens rarely enough that it it shouldn't influence your decision, even though we, we know in retrospect that it is coming. But it's not what it would be on my mind when I'm making the decision. Are you... Um you know, are you interested in like bluffing the server for the same sizing? Are you, are you going to take this action with like nine ten? Or I'm trying to think what kind of bluffs we would we have, or if we want to have bluffs here. Yeah, I mean, exploitatively, no. I think this is a spot where once you've got a preflop raiser who's checked behind the flop and called the turn on a board that looks like this, I think it's. I, mean, I think she always has at least top pair. Uh, I mean, maybe there's an outside chance she has 10-9 suited, but it's unlikely. Like, I, I think she pretty much always has an ace. It's usually a good ace. Um, it's not a situation where I'd really advise trying to to bluff her off of it. So I, I guess I'm, I'm getting pretty exploitative at this point, but um, I'm comfortable with that. Makes sense. Uh and I guess you know, the other argument that you could make is like, well, if you're assuming she's not going to fold an ace, why not bet? bigger uh and, and you know there's it does bet larger as a bluff or, or or you know bet larger for value if, if the assumption is that she's not going to fold an ace and you do have to worry about at some point like if you bet too big um it's not like she, even if she is going to fold an ace when you bet like you, know, like you just go all in like she probably would fold an ace the problem you can't really do that profitably as a bluff because she does have better hands than an ace in her range so at some point if your bet is so large that she can safely fold an ace and not be exploited by your bluffs then that's a problem because then you can't go that large for value anymore um so yeah, I, I think this situation is not as simple as like, oh, if, if not that you're making this argument, but I, I can imagine someone watching or listening, um, thinking like, well, if, if you're saying that you're only going to bet 100k for value when you have a full house, but also that you wouldn't bluff in this situation, like it, it would seem to imply that just you bet larger as a bluff. But I think you run into the problem of you know she does have stronger hands than an ace in her range. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, this, this might be more your forte than mine. Um, once we get into this table talk, so we, you know, he, he bets 77 into 140. She shoves for about 300. And uh, I mean, I think you're not even supposed to be talking about the strength of your hands in the way that like, he tells her that he has a full house. But setting that aside, um, so first she says, uh, he, he asks for a count and she says, oh, good, you didn't just snap call. Uh, right away, do you have any thoughts on on how to interpret that? Well, I mean, my my main like the main question that's going to be entering my head in this situation is would would she be value raising a worse hand? Um, would she be would she be uh, thinking pocket eights is good or king jack is good and that comment is sort of consistent with her expressing a kind of joking feeling of relief. Like, well, you didn't snap call, so I must be good. And so that she's, 
you know, this is sort of like, you know, I guess it's important to weigh this comment in the context of like any other table talk, which we don't have access to. But um, if she's, if we don't have any reason to think she's going to be dishonest, this suggests to me that she's got a hand that seems to her very strong, but not the nuts. So not pocket aces or ace jack. Um, and again, this, this is like, it's a little easier when we have results, but um, I, I would really be trying to figure out like, is this player mistakenly value raising worse or, or value raising a hand that she thinks is good that actually isn't. I think that's, that's excellent analysis. I mean, I think it's, it's exactly the right question to be asking. And I also like the way that you answered it. Uh, I, I would not. And it seemed like our, our hero had the same thought. Um, I would be very surprised to see a bluff here. Um, I think he mentioned the possibility that like maybe she's shoving ace queen as a bluff. I don't, I don't see that happening. Um, I think if you're calling here, it's to beat a hand that she is mistakenly value shoving. It's not to um, to pick off a bluff. I, I just don't think there are really hands where she checks behind flop, calls turn, and then jams over a river bet as a bluff. No, I mean you just got to go to like the like the 10k online high rollers for that. I mean that's just right. like, such a. It's just so it's just hard to find bluffs in those spots, right? And I don't, I just don't see it happening. Uh, I can't imagine it happening in these in the in this this type of situation. Um, you know, the tr- the tough thing though is like, uh, is is just I, I guess it just comes down to combos. You know, like how often she has pocket aces and ace jack versus worse hands. Um, and, I, and that's something that I have always struggled. I just I struggle to do that in, in real time, you know. So I think like, re, like the fact that he relayed these this table talk is, uh, you know, it's valuable. It's good that he's that he's considering these things because I think there is some extra information there. Yeah, and I think actually the questions he's asking because he says, um, "Is she trying to trick me into a call, or are all of her comments genuine in their nature, which would make it an easy call for me?" I mean, I guess once she knows he has a full house, then, or once he tells her he has a full house, then that kind of changes the context of when, you know, when she says, oh, you're going to fold a full house. <laughs> but yeah. the, the first, like initially, because I don't think she's bluffing, I don't think, like when she says, oh, good, you didn't just snap call. You know, that, I don't think that's her trying to trick him into folding because I don't think she thinks she's bluffing <laughs> at that point. Right, right. Which yeah. so I, I like your your interpretation actually didn't occur to me, but I, it, it makes a lot of sense now that you say it. Uh, I mean, I initially just kind of channeled Zach Elwood. Uh, well, first off, the fact that she's talking at all suggests confidence. Like people who are bluffing in this spot are often very like still and reluctant to say anything that they're not obliged to say. So the fact that she's volunteering table talk period suggests some level of confidence, but yeah, that's it's in particular that relief of um, if she knows that King Jack is the kind of thin shove and when she didn't get called immediately, like, yeah, just like interpreting her comments in the most literal way does make a lot of sense once you know the results. It does. Yeah. And uh, you know, this is like, this is a great example of, of why, uh, like, if, if, if this spot happened at the table, I would be unhappy. I would probably, like, unhappily call. I, I would strongly consider folding. I mean, I, was, I would strongly consider folding this hand. But, but uh, hand, like, like, I'm trying to think what would be 
Do you think the situation is very different with like pocket eights, or does that increase the likelihood she'd be spazzing with like King Jack? It's a good question. Uh, I mean, it. I mean, it, I mean, it, it increases does. the combos of Ace Jack. I mean, I look, it's it's interesting because he says he didn't expect her to have King Jack in her preflop range. I wonder whether we would have expected her to have Ace Jack. Um, I mean, it's more likely, but if. I mean, if if we could take Ace Jack out of our out of her range, then I think this is like definitely a call. If you think that she's unlikely to have Ace Jack, um, he didn't address that one way or the other. Um, I mean, it sounds like if he did not, if he didn't expect her to have King Jack, I assume he wouldn't expect her to have Queen Jack or Jack Ten. So the the number of combos of you know trips that she could be overvaluing have to be pretty slim. I mean, checking the flop with aces is. I would say not actually a play I would advise in a four-way pot where there's a lot of straight draws on the board, but definitely something that I could, you know, see someone doing. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I mean, it. it I, I can understand why he's tempted to to fold. I know it's frustrating after the fact when you see the results and you're like, oh my god, I folded that. But I mean, it. I, I think he's right. You really don't see bluffs in this spot. It's a bit of a stretch to think that she's overvaluing, and I, I can fully understand why he wants or wanted to fold. Me too. Yeah. And I think that like, I guess what I was trying to articulate is there, there are moments where, uh, like in my heart of hearts, I know I'm beat, right? but I'm too high up in my range or I'm getting odds or, or whatever. Like I just need to default to some baseline strategy and be like, well, like I'm still going to call because whatever <laughs> math or game theory or like, I, you know, I won't, be able to sleep, I won't be able to sleep at night. Right. And uh, sometimes I'm wrong, sometimes I'm right. I think this is a spot where we, like, our hand is just so strong. And I would, you know, my prayer would be, you know, you can throw in some pocket eights on her part. You could throw in the occasional King Jack. Um, and, I mean, I've seen crazier things. I've seen people shove with, like, ace-king. It's like, who knows why? <laughs> yeah. Really? And in their mind, they're not bluffing. <laughs> they're not bluffing. They're still not bluffing. They're just shoving with ace-king. Right. You know, that's that's obviously a real extreme example, but um, yeah, it seems like a pretty it's, it's a tough spot to me. Yeah, and I mean, I know it's sort of like un unsexy or unsatisfying to just hear like there's not a great answer to this, but I, I like I think it like fold preflop is the answer. <laughs> it's just like that's that's the mistake. Whatever happens on the river, it, I mean, I, it's obviously like more emotionally. Um, impactful because it ends up being like a big pot where you make a in retrospect mistaken fold but i don't think it's the interesting part of the hand like the interesting part or like the really important part of the hand is just fold before the flop and it, it, it is in part because of the situation where you make a full house and you still don't feel that good about your hand when all the money's going in like that is related to why you're folding flop i mean this is an extreme case this isn't like the main reason why you fold pre-flop but it is you know you got your best case scenario and you still had to fold your hand like i don't know what better proof there could be that you just shouldn't be playing this hand pre-flop i agree (laughs) well thanks ben for taking the extra time to talk through the hand it was uh very helpful to have your insight particularly with regard to interpreting that um her her table talk i thought that was uh, quite insightful just from my own perspective yeah my pleasure again and uh you know you, you give me some some nostalgia for live poker i hope <laughs> someday someday or some year soon i'll be able to get back out there 
Yeah, I feel actually I, this is an opportunity to encourage people. Um, I want to hear your like Zoom home game hands. I want to hear about some like interesting dynamics that have come up because like the, I mean the, the fifth story you told about Phil Ivy is great, um, but like the, I want to hear that kind of story. I, I want your strategy hands from your Zoom game where some weird shit goes down because you're playing on on Zoom. Right, uh, hit me up with those. I would love to get some of those on the air. Oh, and and people can send those to podcast at thinkingpoker.net. Anything you want to uh, leave us with, Ben? Uh, yeah, a couple. During this pandemic. Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I was actually going to go with people should be watching, but I'll say that I have been really enjoying a couple of my like go-to all-time favorite books and writers. I've been reading some, I've been reading one Anton Chekhov story every day, uh, which is like a breath of fresh air and which I need this, this, this time of this time of, uh, during this weird time, whatever time we're in. And I've also, uh, I snagged my old collection of where's Waldo books. And I've been like making my way through through them. And those are just fantastic. I just forgot how fantastic they are. Um, so those would be my two book recommendations. What a, what a left field recommendation, but a great one. Oh man, I I, I just I love it. I love it. I, I it makes me. Uh, I mean, we're like twenty years out, but I, it makes me just hope like maybe maybe someday there'll be another one. Um, but I wanted to thank you for your BoJack Horseman recommendation <laughs> because uh, I, when when the when the the month of quarantining started i was like what better time to return to bojack because i had made it through like i made it like halfway through and just you know i just gotten into some other stuff so i've I've recently finished that show and i really i thought it ended really well i don't know if you i I, have i've not seen the last i have either one or two episodes yet to go so um no do not do not spoil the very end i'm not gonna spoil it i was just gonna say i think the show uh, ends really well and i would recommend i would recommend the, the show as a whole just full stop and i think that the, the show ends really really well and I, we may have talked about this last time i can't remember but i i just am really hard pressed to find a show that does a better job with like narrative detail and character development i mean it's just phenomenal it's just so mm-hmm. well written um so there's one and then the last thing that Everybody else is probably saying already is that, you know, we're talking on a Sunday and I'm looking forward to the next installment of The Last Dance for some Michael Jordan greatness and absurdity. So um, are you familiar with this or no? Uh, no, this is I'm, I'm not the uh, designated sports correspondent for All right. the well, podcast. As, as the guest correspondent today, I'll say that, um, yeah, The Last Dance is a 10 part ESPN documentary about Michael Jordan's last season with the Chicago Bulls, I believe 1997, 98. And uh, the first two episodes came out last week and I thought they were really strong. And, you know, I will say there's some like pretty serious nostalgia value for me as well um, as somebody who grew up loving basketball on the Bulls. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just uh, reading, watching stuff stuff i've been listening to to john prine that's been my my big music discovery yeah i should i should check that out so i think i've just like i think i've just unloaded a bunch of recommendations no that's great that's exactly what i wanted yeah what about you um 
What did I watch recently? I watched uh, Stranger Things, which I know the, like the Poker World had had watched a while ago, and it seemed like the consensus was season one was really good, and then people didn't enjoy season two that much, and season three, like it seemed like by everyone, like I didn't even hear much talk about season three. I definitely thought season one was the strongest. I found them all pretty well put together, just from a kind of storytelling perspective, which is something that I've been studying a little bit recently. Um, I found it pretty interesting just to see like how they uh, how they constructed these stories and how they like keep upping the stakes when they've kind of already had a big sort of world threatening disaster and like super powerful character in epi- in the first season. Then it was like, how do you continue to make things exciting and in subsequent seasons like how do you do something bigger than that which i think is a pretty common dilemma for sequels in general sort of like you don't want to hold back in your first season or your first movie or whatever because you don't you can't be sure that you're going to get a second one or in fact you probably are not just like knowing the odds in uh in the production industry but then once you do put it all on the table in your first season and then they do want you to do a second season you know it's, it's hard to uh, follow up on on things um so i thought that was pretty well executed yeah i i uh i i are there three seasons or two there's three three yeah i think i've seen the first two and i remember enjoying them and and that's a show with some nostalgia value too for anybody who grew up oh, in yeah. the 80s it's a little bit before my time but not i, much. I was gonna say i have only a kind of a vague uh recollection of stuff but i yeah, I, I know enough to like know what they're going for <laughs> yeah yes yeah definitely enjoy that one too um yeah. Oh, you know, the other thing I've, I've been listening to, and, and this is, is, I've recommended some other like fiction podcasts on the show before, but like the New Yorker fiction is not necessarily like comforting <laughs> fiction. It, it's often kind of unsettling. Um, LeVar Burton reads is uh, so LeVar Burton from, um, well, Star Trek I, was the next generation he was on. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also from reading rainbow, which is probably the more relevant uh, for, for this. There's a podcast where he just reads like short stories for adults um i think he i think there's also one where he's doing reading for um both middle-aged kids and younger kids not middle age, middle grade kids and uh, younger kids but um yeah there's there's one where he's reading short fiction you know that's that's written for adults often with adult content in it and um it's mostly speculative fiction like science fictiony kind of stuff which initially surprised me and then i was like oh right he was on star trek <laughs> not, not too surprising that he's into that um i think he has like good taste in what he chooses and he just has like a fantastic reading voice um it's just so i mean i don't even know i don't think i watched a lot of reading rainbow when i was a kid but i definitely watched some so i think part of it is like at some like deep level in my brain it's like hearing lavar burton read is like taking me back to uh you know comforting childhood memories but um yeah i just think he has like a very kind of calming relaxing presence and uh is, is a good reader and has good taste in what he chooses to read i've been enjoying that a lot that's great yeah thank you for that i i was not aware of the the podcast but i'm very aware of lavar burton so i'll definitely look forward to checking that out all right well thanks so much ben it was good catching up with you and you know, keep on keep on taking care and I hope that we'll get a chance to see each other in person sometime not too far distant in the future. Likewise, yeah, thanks Andrew. Talk soon. Or the devotion of a car 
the light of the fair passage of a bill And who will sign us into law? I know you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't Will you, you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't Will you, you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't You won't sign up I drafted up a beautiful contract All of our intention, crafted intact All of the language leads to the